You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. the show everybody it's your host john scardina i have been trying to get this guy on the show for like a year now he was one of my professors at georgetown university he's with cranfield university so you can talk about that kind of the relationship and how that worked there but as you guys have heard several times because i've had a lot of my cohort on here uh, it was my master's program and we really focused on the theory and application of emergency and disaster management dr stephen johnson who i call steve is truly an expert in CBRNE, specifically related to chemical and biological events. And he really taught me uh, the foundation of that understanding of how that interacts within our global community. And he can speak to a lot of the in-depth things there. Uh, you know, we've been in this whole year in a pandemic and we can talk about that as well. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey there, John, really good to talk to you. You know, I'm really excited for this because I've had probably half the cohort on this show over the year. And uh, I, I would say that almost every single person, one of the f one of the first things they say after the show is, "Why haven't you had Steve on here yet? Why haven't you had Steve?" I'm like, "Well, funny enough, I've been trying to get him on here." So, hey, thank you so much for making time. I know you're extremely busy, and I really appreciate it. No worries at all. I'm sure you say that to all of your faculty. <laughs> yes, I do. All the zero faculty I've had on here. So, <laughs> there's a reason too. Like, you really are a fan favorite. You were both a fan favorite in our program, and I'm not talking you up. I mean. There was um, there was a, an understanding in our program that you're you're both an expert in your field, but you're also a practitioner in your field, and um, you know all of our professors kind of had that, but you were able to at least not just the persona, but really show us why in depthly of like why that's important and uh, and multitask there. And so before we get into like really anything, um, can you just talk to me about 
what it means to become a true expert in the field and what it takes to do that? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, start with a hard question. Um, the, <laughs> I think uh, the first thing I'd probably take issue with, which I guess everyone would, is the whole concept of the expert. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it shouldn't be a static thing. You never stop learning. You know, uh, every time you sort of allow your uh, your concepts and your precepts to fix, you know, you, you stagnate and you die. Um, so I, I think if I looked at anything that had helped me get to, to where I am now, it's probably the fact that I've always had a little bit of imposter syndrome. And so I've always wanted to listen to other people because I'm sure that they know more than me. Um, and the more you listen and the more that you sort of network and communicate, actually you find that sometimes some of the best things you can do, some of the best expertise is, is linking people, linking them to data, to other people, to resources. Uh, and so in a strange way, that expertise isn't necessarily about some phenomenal academic research. And, you know, there are people who are far, far better at me um, in terms of their research output, but about actually identifying the problems and connecting people with the solutions, um, which is, you know, uh, it's lovely to see that that's something that you've gone into heavily yourself as well. Well, I... Uh, I... I think the trick is, so between you and Rodney Melsick, who's been on the show, uh, somebody I, I definitely can't claim as one of my mentors. He's actually with me at He's Double a legend. Men. He is a legend. And, you know, when I first met him, you know, he's an interesting guy, right? Like, he's not an A-type personality. And it really shocked me at the time. Before before I was uh, learned, if you could say that, uh, I was like, who is this guy? And then he started working. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is why this, he, he is a legend because he's the best. He's, he really is the best and he's been doing it forever. But the thing that got me about him was his ability to keep learning. Um, so yep, many, absolutely. our, our, our field is driven by a type personalities for a good reason. We want to get the job done, but it's also a major hindrance because as soon as we all get bullheaded, we think our way is the right way. You're right. Like it's stagnant. And like Rodney would say, like, no, we're going to get the job done, but like, there's maybe there's more out here. And he would be learning f at a faster rate than anybody else. And I think it, it only perpetuated the, the, the more he knew. The more he knew, the more he knew where he didn't know. You know, he knew what he didn't know, if that makes any sense. Absolutely does. I mean, the, uh, I have to say, his lecture to, to the program still probably one of my favorite talks from anyone uh, although you know my focus has always been about counterterrorism um, the and his talk was mainly about emergency management those principles that he gave you as a class in mm -hmm. terms of what things you can take take forward as, as ways to approach your job uh, they were just incredible timeless and also uh, you know a, a phenomenal speaking style for you know for anyone who ever had the chance to speak to him the, he, he just walks around the class I know. just engaging with people. And the thing that hit me more than anything else is that he did that classic thing that you see with great leaders. Um, he he asks a bit about you, which is a connection. So where are you from? I've been there. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, And before you know it, he's, although like you say, not a classic alpha, I, I call him a stealth alpha because he, he kind of gets you following him, but you don't really realize he's doing oh, it to you. And, and again, I think that falls back to the, the, the key aspect of expertise is if you can get people um, engaging for you, working for you, and wanting you to succeed, um, then, then that's half the battle. Because if you're having to try and pull information all the time um, and 
constantly having to uh, to work to get that information, um, you know, that limits you. Whereas if you can do the Rodney trick of just getting everyone to want to help you, then um, it's half the battle. Okay, real talk. If we have another discussion about what leadership is, I might die inside. We've had I've had so many. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, like between my masters and my undergrad, and like you know, talk about trying to become an expert. Like, I don't care to become an expert in leadership anymore. Like, I'm so tired. Oh, there's so so many different types of leadership. You look at Rodney Melsick, you look at Steve Johnson, you look at like some of these other real leaders, and uh, and I think it's really easy. I think it might be hard actually to identify what a leader is until you see someone who's not a leader. And yeah, it's like, and it's oh, don't do that. Like X, Y, and Z. Like don't do that. Like hard talk. So, um, like in that same vein, though, with Rodney, one thing he does is he's able to not just connect with the person, but he's able to make a personal connection. I, I asked him, how is it that you're able to remember names so easily? And he's like, I love movies. So I, when I see a person, I just, I see the movie, you know, if I meet, oh. uh, you know, if I meet Steve, I'm going to associate it with Steve Jobs, the movie. Right. And so he's able to go through and that's how he visualizes a room. And I've, I've never seen anybody so well, just like remember details about people, especially their name. And then when you call people by their name, it makes them like, Oh, it makes them feel important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Steve, Sorry, I, I, I fast. <laughs> Good working. Um, I've, I've kind of diverted you there off of, uh, off of the CBRN topic. Which, oh, it's fine. You know, that's probably synonymous with CBRN. Is the moment people look at CBRN, they try and find something not CBRN to talk about on it because <laughs> because no one wants to talk about actual CBRN. So it becomes no. This is a management challenge or a leadership oh, challenge nice. or. This is just hell. Okay, so let's talk about it then, because um, I actually really do, I had. Um, oh my gosh, uh, Jack, I had William Jackson on here who did kind of some of that stuff in, uh, when he was in the military and she talked about it briefly. Um, but I've been kind of saving this stuff because I do have uh, a lot of questions and, and thought processes myself. And I think a lot of other people are becoming aware that like when we say CBRNE, like chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear explosives, uh, for those who don't know the acronym, people think doomsday. And they don't realize that it's used on individual basis. You know, it's it's used all the time in warfare and in, um, in psychological warfare. Even you do one small incident turns into something big. And um, it it reminded me of uh, thinking about this. Um, I always forget it, so I have to write it down. You're gonna think I'm the worst student ever. <laughs> Pulling up my notes here. Explosion de la machine infer- infernale. If I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. yeah. My old, like, my. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, my my super old picture to show you all about. I Nothing love it. Changing. It was. It's mm. one of the classes that I actually re, like verbatim can remember where I was sitting right when I was when you were presenting this and you showed that picture because, like, it it changed the trajectory of how I approached active shooters, and I ended up being um, unfortunately involved in acts, active assailant events in D.C. and um, and now I, I help teach it, and it's one of the principles that I teach is uh mm-hmm. is using that experience of like acts of terrorism whether from nation states or you know from an individual level have been around for a long time and yeah. the the process the, like these eight steps that people take to become a terrorist um especially if it's for a political gain right um that's like these these have been around for a while we've been studying this and that's so i really appreciate uh you sharing that and, and for teaching us that 
So I'm going to get mm-hmm. off this whole fanboy thing for a little bit. And, yep, uh, come on. Yeah, let's get Every question. So, yeah. <laughs> Time to answer the real questions. Wait, wait. Hold up. Hold up. I probably have a sound for this. Uh, will this work? Fight wildfires. Nope. That won't work. Oh, I was going to try to find some cool music. <laughs> the intro. Everybody heard that again. Uh, oh, there we go. Questions, <laughs> questions for Steve. That's terrible. <laughs> well, we're talking about CBRND, so yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, you focus more on the chemical and biological side, right? Sure. Okay. So, in terms of recent events, are there because you look at this so much? Are there recent events you're like, oh, that's going to change the the name of the game here, or you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of more of the the standard practice for for groups using these kind of weapons. Well, I mean, I, it's, like you know what's strangely probably the, the most interesting thing in terms of uh, game changes um, has probably been COVID um, mm. for, for some very strange reasons because it's constant uh, or as a constant within CBRM, one of the things you always hear people say is, yeah, we're not really investing in it right now, but you know, just wait, we have one serious incident and everyone's going to take this seriously and it's all going to happen and we'll start doing it. And you look back and go, well, so we had Tokyo, we had the anthrax letters, we've had, you know, insert the, the hundreds of incidents that occur all the time. You know, we've had fourth generation nerve agent used to assassinate someone in the UK. If you, if you, can't sort of have that as a trigger and indeed a sort of uh, a global biological pandemic um, as well now we should probably take CBRN seriously. It's difficult to think what incident we would need to have that would actually cause a kind of step change but but even then people seem to want to dilute it. So the, the thing about COVID which has answered some really interesting questions is that some countries have just said this isn't a CBRN thing, this is a health thing, it's nothing to do with you CBRN people like stay stay back in your cupboard. You scare us. You're all military and police, and we don't really like that. This is all about doctors and nurses. We get that, and it plays much better. Uh, and we just and it's just going to scare people if people are wearing respirators. So you sort of saw that at the start here. No one even wanted to go to the face coverings because uh, you know it, it plays badly. Does it create panic? And and you know this isn't people taking the situation um, lightly. It's them genuinely weighing up the impact of, of bringing these things in. But as a result, I think some countries really missed the trick in terms of, well, hang on a second, we've trained tens of thousands of people about contamination control, about how to um, uh, deal with issues in terms of outbreaks and, and some components like that. And, and they, we just haven't really used them. Um, the uh, Some countries like Germany sort of stood up their forces a bit, but but the thing that has become really obvious is that we really just didn't integrate our civilian responsibilities into the military responses. And, and bio is always the one which everyone goes, ah, it's a bit too difficult. Let's focus on the chem because it's way easier for the exercise. Small bang, deal with it, clean it up, decon it, probably won't exercise decon because that takes you long, and, um, and we're away. You do bio, and everyone's like, well, where does it start? Oh, this is a nightmare exercise. I don't want to do this. Yeah. And how many people? No way. We're not doing this. Um, uh, and so if something's changed, I think, genuinely speaking, the public will not allow, allow any government to get away with not having comprehensive plans for um, either deliberate or natural outbreak of biological disaster going forward. Because, you know, a year of global economic lockdown, 
Yeah, I don't think anyone could have predicted quite how quite how significant that would be. And that's with a natural outbreak, not with someone deliberately trying to cause it to happen, um, which you know could add could have added all sorts of additional elements into it as well. So, so yeah, I, I think that's that's one particular. But the I, I sort of hold my reservations about other things because um, the you know we hear a lot of people talking about taking other aspects of CBRN more seriously. Um, the, the use of agents by both sides in the Syrian war. Um, you know, we got all the way through to the chemical or the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and the UN Joint Report, you know, validating that this had happened. And, you know, the most we got, you know, as far as we got was, you know, a forced removal of those agents. Um, and then when subsequent issues happen, we don't see a great deal more. And, um, it, it's the, the classic CBRN issue. When something happens, it gets explained away as an outlier. These things don't happen very often. That was an outlier. We can't expect that to keep happening. Uh, you know, assassination with a nerve agent in, um, in the UK, that's an outlier. You know, they're not, not going to keep doing that. Oh, gosh, they did it again. Well, okay, but that really is the outlier now. That's definitely not going to happen again. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, that, that's an intriguing one. Um, I, I think perhaps, though, what we have seen on the... Uh, on that side, on the chem, is a realization that, that police and military need to work much, much more closely together. Um, and I think we recognize the problem, but we're still not quite sure about the solution on that. Yeah. Sorry, you got me on a ramp there. I love it. I love it. I think everybody's listening and saying, like, okay, like this makes sense. The, the, the one sticking point I have, and we can, uh, it'd be fun to talk about this, is, mm-hmm. um, I've been putting together like fun, I want to say fun, they're not fun. I've been putting together after actions, things we already knew that we didn't know after actions. We have the most educated population in the world, the history of the world. More people have gone to college in the history of the world, right? More people are more educated. Education has failed because you were debating the use of wearing a mask. Yeah. Like, Like, are you kidding me? Or, uh, you know, are, are they putting microchips in, in the vials? Like, um, the, the, uh, it, here in the U.S., um, you know, as soon as the election's over, the pandemic's going to be over. Like, you know, it's a global thing, right? And so, like, there, it, it's, just, it's just been, like, uh, frustrating from that standpoint. I lived in Japan in 2006. First time I went to Japan. Um, I lived there three times. First time in 2006. Anytime somebody got sick, they'd put on a face mask. And they, you know, they'd probably still go to work, but it was common there, and it it was never shocking to me. And yep. you know, you fast forward. I mean, so if that was common practice then, think how long they were already doing it. Fast forward to 2020, and people are like, "It takes away my freedom." That's what everybody was saying. I can't breathe with a mask on. I'm like, you know, surgeons do this for like 20 oh, hour God. days. You know, like every day. Um, like again, this like whole education thing of like just not being able to process logically. I had somebody argue to me that it, it was an infringement on their rights, their their freedom to, to wear a mask. And I said, so you're hyper aware that governments are tracking you. That's what you think. I said, yes. I said, first of all, you're not that important. Second of all, a mask makes it harder. This is my mask, right? Makes it harder yeah. to see you on a video surveillance. It's actually helping your freedom if you really think about it. And obviously six feet apart, creates a little more freedom, gets a little more space. So I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I just think like there's been a, 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 
a mass um, production of people trying to learn information and not being able to process information. And that's probably a whole nother topic. Um, yeah. but, but in terms of the pandemic itself, it's true. Like it, it feels so catastrophic and a slow onset disasters and by nature are just hard for people to comprehend anyways. You're like, oh, I thought this was exploding. It is exploding, but it starts really, really small, you know, and, you know, they don't really understand exponential growth. Um, so that's that's really fascinating. You, you bring that up. The, the, the part about governments, the sticking point was like, uh, like Texas just, uh, you know, said here again mm -hmm. in the United States, hey, no more mandates. It's up to personal yep. responsibility. And I, I like that sentiment, but. I don't think people are holding them accountable. Like you have these doctors in Texas be like, wait, you know, and that's, that's not really going to do anything. How do we balance these extreme events with trying to get politicians to change policy? No, it's a really tough one. I mean, the, um, it's really interesting. You'd obviously expect there to be, I mean, in a, in a, in a country which quite rightly, um, uh, you know, enshrines the importance of individual rights. Um, as much as the United States, it, it isn't surprising that these sorts of arguments can can arise, however nonsensical they may seem. <laughs> um, but the um, but, but the fact that they've arisen there isn't in other countries where you know, to be honest, you know, there isn't an enshrinement of particular individual rights like the UK. And I mean, I've I've, I've gone through process, and um, so I'm because uh, it's good to have multiple jobs. I'm a police officer as well. I've gone, to, gone through city centres where people have been saying, "Arrest me! Arrest me! I'm not wearing a, a, a mask. You've got to arrest me!" You know, um, because they want to they want to make some sort of big protest about individual rights. You know, well, first of all, you know, you clearly don't understand the way policing works because we have discretion, and like, if you want to be arrested, that's probably the last thing I'm going to do. Um, and secondly, the it's as you say. It's really strange the dissonance in people's brains, many of whom go out and protest with, before this, went out and protested with masks on so that they wouldn't be recognized, and now are protesting without masks off in order to demonstrate their freedom. But equally would be pretty upset if we said, you know what, so if we look at uh, drink driving and someone's individual rights to drink as much as they want and drive down a road mowing people down, like no one would agree that that was okay. That's clearly not acceptable. Um, yet when we talk about um, uh, public health, all of a sudden, you know, the individual's right trumps the rights of the group not to be infected by that person. And that's about masks. It's also about vaccination as well. Um, and, you know, that's not unique to COVID. We've seen it uh, in countries with the outbreak of, of diseases we hadn't seen for years, like measles in the UK have pretty much been wiped out. And that's resurged again. Um I think it's connected to, and this is a good tip for us, I think, for CBRN incidents in the future, the Google expert. I mean, it, the internet's a great thing. Google is a phenomenal resource um, as other search engines are available. Um, but the, the one thing that has been really problematic about it is what I like to think of as the three-click expert. So they, they want to know more, but they don't want to know more than a quick search and three clicks. So whatever they find at the top of their results and one click through, that's them. They're on it. Um, and you can kind of tell them because if you see their argument online, you know, and you search for what they're arguing for, you'll probably find the article that they're citing straight away because they won't have gone much further. And it's really, 
you even see these arguments developing where, where if you counter them, then they'll search a little bit further and a little bit further. And at the heart of it, you think, gosh, if only there was like a profession where we had people keeping on top of the research and summarizing it in a publicly accessible way, and, and we would trust them to be able to interpret this for us rather than having to do it all ourselves. Yeah, I know. In a, <laughs> in a service-related industry, why don't we invent something like, you know, people that focus on science, uh, we could call them sciences or something, or, you know, science workers or something. I don't know, there's a catchier name perhaps. But oh, So, hilarious. yeah, I guess uh, that's a big lesson for us in Seagram because, you know, the... <laughs> The debate you can never not have about double negative, about uh, CBRN, is the how clean is clean. How do you say the disaster is over now? And that's true of all of them, CB and R. Um, and we're sort of seeing this with people trying to come out the end of COVID. You know, how do we say it's over now? Is it, is it an acceptable level? The problem being for us that we've always had acceptable levels of um, uh, influenza deaths. So when you, you know in the UK we have twenty thousand people were dying of influenza each year before COVID, uh, and and people are kind of conflating that and saying, well, so when COVID gets to twenty thousand, is that okay for us to stop, or does it have to be zero? Um, and they want a little unsure. Um, but but what what we can take away from this is something that we would need to do when we're saying, well, you can reoccupy that building; it's been clean now, or you're clean now is that people are not going to just take an expert's opinion. They, they might do immediately if they're feeling shocked and terrified. They may listen to the public official who's there providing help immediately. But in a more considered area, they're going to Google the work out of it and they are going to challenge and they're going to you know, feel manipulated. And, uh, you know, I'm sure pretty much all of your speakers have always said this. We, we probably need a lot more public affairs and communication capability than we really think it is. And it, it isn't just about putting like good tweets out with pictures of people handing out packets. It's about, um, I've heard someone use a phrase recently about uh, weaponizing social media, which I'm not entirely sure I like the phrase, um, but making it much more of a two-way street. So you're engaging with the public and going with it. You're not just mm. sending the information out. You're actually, it's an easy thing to say, you know, when, when people are trying to run social media accounts engaging with you know a hundred thousand a million people you know how do you have a two-way conversation with a million people um yeah so but, um yeah the, the here's, sorry. here's like the catch-22 right because i just had a great conversation with uh jesse nalipa who was the external affairs director for fema and so uh, i think everybody by by now has uh hopefully listened to her episode so everybody should listen to Absolutely. her but we were just talking about branding mm-hmm. and um consistency and consistency in branding is very important but the the sometimes the problem is uh and we didn't talk about this too much and i should probably have her back on is like um public health what i said you know what i said to her was uh public health has forgotten how to interact with the public they forgot the public piece and so like i would like oh here's a really example i would always always fight the term mustering in dc we're, we're going to do evacuations and everyone needs to go to their mustering location. I'm working with PhDs and who are literally walking across the street thinking we're talking about the sandwich shop, you know, muster. Like they, they don't understand that term. And so like, I, I think we need to do a much better job of using the t- terminology that may be actually f- factually wrong. I know that sounds crazy, but to, to say, hey, this is the term you think it means. The general public thinks it means. When I say testing, 
everyone's going to do their individual test. That really does mean everyone's going to do their own swab and somebody in a lab is going to do a test, right? Yeah. Um, but if I say uh, the students, uh, each the students are going to collect the test or going to collect the swabs. Uh, yeah, collect the swabs. That's in a parent's mind, they're going to hear my student's going to go around and collect everybody else's swab. No, right? And so... Like I was just, I just had that argument uh, recently, and that was absolutely insane that I was even uh, trying to explain that. But uh, like, that's that's like the reality of the situation. Like yeah. when when we say wear a mask, I, I think there might have been a better way to do it. I think there might have been a way to say like, let's let's all be unified in trying to crush this epidemic that might turn into a pandemic, and if we yeah. all just we all just like suffer for a couple weeks here and just just try really hard to just like put this thing on for just a couple weeks we can probably manhandle it in fact i helped write the the national strategy for pandemics in 2014 to 2016 and that was part of the plan of like the messaging and when we get to 2000 you know freaking 20 uh it's like oh we're not following the plan and the message is like well maybe you should do it maybe you shouldn't how far it's like Everyone was so focused on their lane and what they thought was right that they forgot who the audience was. And I'm going to talk about a, that a load of good, You bring up a load of good points there. I mean, the, one of the key ones in my mind that that makes me think of as well, though, is kind of knowledge management. We do a lot of good work sometimes analyzing this, but our ability to remember work that we've done seems to go back about two years. And beyond that, we kind of forget it's been done. So interestingly, in the response in some areas in the UK, a lot of people sort of, you know, the planning teams were brought together and they're like, okay, let's, let's get on this. And there's a sense of urgency. And we've got to get this done really quickly. So people straight away start thinking, you know, no one's ever thought about this before. I'm going to be creating this all. I'm running on virgin snow. Um, and partway through, in one of the planning teams I was in, someone goes, hey, there's this whole manual here about infectious disease control. Is this, is this useful? Yeah, that's a little bit useful. What does it say? <laughs> it says everyone is supposed to already have a plan in place. We, we can just tell them to to do the plans that they're supposed to have. Wow, that is uh, that does sound like it would be quite useful. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, that's I think that becomes a key a key issue of you know, be good at like your knowledge management. Assume I can, you, know, you could you could argue be lazy. Start off with thinking maybe someone else has already done this and be receptive to those ideas uh, rather that. than, uh, you know, seeing the every opportunity in a disaster to be the person that saves the day with your own personal plan when you know, maybe your best job is, again, to the point at the start, connecting people with the right resource. It doesn't have to be something that you've invented yourself. Yeah, definitely full circle here because um, that, that really comes down to helping you be an expert. Uh, Patrick McGinn, um, who I worked with on the national team now with Salvation Army, he's been on here a couple times, he loves to say, like, I don't invent anything. I just find where it's already been made, and I apply it to my situation. And he comes out with these amazing products because he's able to pull in all these different resources and say, okay, this is what's most applicable, and I'm going to do that. And I, I think as an emergency management community, especially because the community is still fairly small, the industry is still trying to figure itself out, right? I mean, the last 20 years, it's really changed, especially with programs starting up at universities. But they're still considered professional, you know, professional programs. It's, it's, it doesn't really get into the, the the in depth theory or sciences behind it, and it really sh it really needs to get there. But um, that being that being said, 
Like, I think you're right. Like a lot of this stuff has been thought about. That's how you become an expert. That's how you look like you have the answers very quickly by not having to take the time to reinvent the wheel or be a moron and just use your own opinion. Right. Yep. Like that's that's uh, an opinion based. What, what do I say on this on the show all the time? Uh, an opinion based analysis is an opinion based of one. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you if you want to grab in information, you grab in data like that's excellent. So I think there's like really good call outs to emergency managers to be like, oh, like, for example, like specifically related to this and, and covid continuity of operations plans. You, you shouldn't have to have to. I mean, you could dive into each disaster type. But if you're representing a private industry, there should be an uh, an MOU in place, a memorandum of understanding with your like partners if something happens to, to your business in a catastrophic event, or if the decision maker is physically unable to sign, like, I don't know, paychecks. You don't have the legal authority just to go in there and start signing paychecks, right? You need to have a document in place saying, these are the ways that we contact you know, the executive, the executive's unavailable, this person during this amount of time is able to represent the, the, the business and, um, you know, for the best interest of the business. And, uh, that, that could have applied when executives possibly got COVID right. Or decision makers got COVID. What do you do with your staff? So excellent call outs of like making it applicable to your situation. Um, I think that's a net, that's a net benefit. Uh, hopefully that's a net benefit that we can take away from COVID of, of a lot of organizations that always claim they have business continuity plans, but, uh, you know, have tended to have to make them on the fly. Um, the way off the zebra and track, but the, uh, so my wife works in IT and obviously the moment that this happened, a lot of companies went, Oh wow. You know, employees are going to have to work from home now. So, uh, we better get them some IT. So, you know, within, within weeks, the global IT market was just, there was nothing available. Yeah. And my wife was in sort of, you know, just, bewildered with people phoning up going, you know, why can't they just make more computers? It's like, well, unfortunately, the major chip manufacturer for almost all of the IT in the world is in Wuhan province. So we have a perfect storm here of of the exact place where we need to get the equipment for the business continuity solutions that you didn't plan for is exactly the epicenter of this disaster. So you can't use that. And, you know, if there could ever be a better, um, you know, full stop about why you don't leave your business continuity planning till just in time. It's well, because the, you know, who could have forecast that would happen? Well, turns out it does. And, and actually I think perhaps that also relates to, and again, a, a huge challenge for aspects of CBRM because CBRM at its larger end, even at its smaller end is a logistics and a, and a mass related issue, whether it is about dealing with lots of casualties with lots of material to remove or to, to manage uh, moving people to actually uh, get in and remove the contamination. It's scale and logistics. And, you know, modern modern society is, is efficient. You know, we have enough for what we need and we have it driven by capital. We don't have spare resource hanging around and we have a lot of interdependency. So weirdly, I think in a lot of uh, the scrutiny of continuity plans, what we need to do is a really thorough sort of contingent um, checking to make sure that, well, hang on, I'm going to draw on this resource. Is anyone else going to be drawing on this resource at the same time as well? Now, weirdly, the insurance industry has always understood this, and they actually set aside you know, the contingent effect that you know, if a whole load of buildings get taken out in a windstorm or a large terrorist attack, 
Um, everyone's going to be asking for building. Well, how much building capacity is there? Well, this much, therefore, actually the return to normality is going to take a lot longer than in theory because actually 100 buildings can't be rebuilt in three months. It's going to be sequenced rather than um, parallel activity. So, again, hopefully, people, this, this sort of knock to the system will, will, will make people think that they need to look at that as well. Okay. Real talk, that reminds me of the Lords of London conversation we had in the UK when those guys came yeah, in sure. talking about the math of that. And I was so pissed because I was like, these guys, these guys are having fun. I want to do this. Like, and I was like, oh, I wish, I wish I would have known this much earlier. And since then, I, I've dived into a, a lot of those different areas trying to do like my own learning and just like, okay, how does this all work? And you're right. Like, like data, ha data is so critical to what we're doing. It is the next phase of emergency management and, and CBR and whatever. Like, it the the more the more situational awareness you have, and are able to to predictive analysis, especially because we're starting to get into like quantum physics and and quantum computing with uh, with weather patterns even, and then try to figure that out. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's been really phenomenal to to like see like okay like. This isn't doomsday prepping. This is like the, where the data is pointing, and we could potentially make make uh, curves here. I I brought up another uh, to another person that the number one um, the number one snowplow contract in the United States is for San Francisco because we did the wow. math, and if we had a nine point zero in San Francisco, there would be four feet of glass in the streets. Wow! How do you get first responders in there? How do you get people out over shattered glass? Hopefully it's all tempered. It's probably not, right? So like, how how do you get people out? And so you need snowplows to come in and, and clear that out. And so like, that's where data can can really help us out. You keep on saying we're not talking about CBRN, but but we are. I mean, and, and, and it, it all sense, it all interlinks within it. Yeah. I mean, the so the insurance guys, Lloyd's and uh, so Paul Ree as well, so the the government reinsurer of terrorism, um, uh, absolutely really fascinating people. So it's a you know, it's a slightly different scheme in the U.S. because you have federal reinsurance, but it's a similar concept. And weirdly, those guys all talk together. And you know what? The problems that they identify and they start looking at are sort of the problems that we should be looking at as well. We kind of, with most people I've spoken to in counterterrorism, whenever I say, have you spoken to anyone in the insurance industry? They look at you like you're crazy and are like, well, why would I do that? Um, and you sit there going, well, because they sit on billions of pounds worth of risk associated with if all this yes. goes wrong. Their professional job, a guy called Dr. Gordon Wu, um, uh, uh, working for probably one of the largest risk modelers in the world, um, famously said that terrorism insurance is actually uh, it's actually taking a gamble, a risk on the effectiveness of a country's terrorism counterterrorism capability. So you're, you're gambling, you know, how effective do you think it is? And so insurance companies. Companies are constantly trying to work out how good is this country at stopping acts of terrorism and then how big will the incident be? Another really interesting example where we don't really talk much, we found years ago, um, we spoke to some government departments and said, uh, so most of your, do you own the land that your, um, that your departments are on? They're like, uh, no, no, we've sold that off years ago. We went it back from a, you know, a capital holding. Oh, okay, right, sure. So, well, so that means they're probably insured. Um, they almost certainly will have taken CBRN insurance. So if your building is actually contaminated, who do you think would be paying to clean it up? Like, well, it's government buildings. So are we clearing it up? No, they've got insurance. Yeah. Uh, and what we discovered was that um, 
there was a complete misunderstanding. The UK wasn't the only um, country that had this sort of um, issue with when you're coming back out of the disaster, actually how you make most effect of all the different options you've got to, to finance your way out of that disaster. So, because an insurance company is not going to pay out if the government have already paid out. Famously in the UK, we've had incidents where the government said we're going to pay and insurance is one of its principles. It, it can't enrich the person. Uh, it can only compensate them. So, so, so if you've already been compensated the full effect of your loss, the insurance company doesn't pay out. Now, now they don't mind because they, they haven't had to pay out. But so, um, you know, I remember some of your colleagues on the course, some of the best things I've ever seen have been the, the work done to help emergency managers understand how do we finance this recovery? You know, what, what are the options that we have? How do we draw in insurance? How do we draw in reimbursement through programs, through FEMA, et cetera, et cetera? If you get that right, that's a really key part of it. Uh, the same thing, though, as well, though, and again, people may not be massively aware of it, but the insurance industry tries to model these disasters because they're not trying to understand how big they are. Uh, and um, this sort of runs into perhaps one of my biggest issues with CBRN. We are way too secretive. Um, so we make way too much too difficult to share you know, it is a nightmare sharing information within a country, let alone internationally, um, uh, very unnecessarily. Then you look at a sister industry, Hazmat, and go, and they have no such problems. And you're like, well, the same thing. <laughs> so, you know, I genuinely, this Hazmat week, only this week, I've had Hazmat is not, this is news to me, Hazmat is not considered like a subset of like a uh, chemical? Wouldn't that be under chemical? Depends on your country. So in the UK, uh, we have um, our fire service do hazmat and they do CBRN. So the teams are different. Um, they may be the same, um, uh, or they may have personnel from the same thing. But they, because hazmat is seen as a, a definable accident, so you know a lot of hazmat crews almost make a sort of thing about, well, we don't really need detection equipment because you know we're just going to look at a manifest to see what's going on. You know, that's usually people that have only just started in hazmat and then they discover people not really blogging stuff properly. Um, but, but, but it's seen as a slightly different discipline. Um, whereas CBRN, and this is the issue of hyper-specialism, the moment you make a dedicated CBRN team that only responds to certain CBRN incidents, they don't get to practice, they don't learn any lessons, they don't improve, their kit doesn't get properly used, but then eventually people go, why do we even have this capability? Um, so hyper-specialism, bad thing. When we look at our health services in CBRN, in the UK, uh, capability was created called the Hazardous Area Response Team. And the Department of Health um, are you know, a really interesting organization in the, the UK. Obviously, we have uh, public health care. We have private health care as well, but we have this publicly funded health care. And when they looked at this from first principles, they had no legacy. We didn't have you know, CBRN or HAZMAT emergency medical services before. I mean, you know what? It doesn't make sense to just have CBRN EMS. Mm. Why don't we create these teams who are, they're the teams who are going to use for a hazmat, for CBRN, for USAR, for fast water rescue, um, because then that team's going to be busy. They're going to have a massive training bill, but it's efficient and they're, they're going through things. That's been going for years now, really, really, really effective and it doesn't suffer any of the issues that other sort of CBRN capabilities have where people go, uh, do we really need this? Are they really very busy? Because they're always busy. Mm. And, and even if they haven't got anything that falls into those categories, they're just going to do the normal EMS response anyway. So 
I guess that becomes the other thing for me about CBRN is that over-specialized, underused capabilities are not capabilities at all. Um, you've got to give them something to practice on. So question then, question and answer with uh, Dr. Stephen Johnson. Beirut explosion, CBRN or hazmat? So I'm going to say hazmat because um, uh, at its heart it was an accident um, rather than there being an intent behind it. But that's when the difference between two things is intent, it's a pretty fine line. You could send the same same teams to to do the to, to deal with the issue, but hazmat purely because of the fact that it was an accident rather than a deliberate release in my mind. So anytime that we're talking about CBRN, we have to think of uh, the intent. That helps me out actually a lot because I, years ago I did um, I actually went with the no liaison uh, Mike Paddock, Doctor Mike Paddock, who um, I'd love to have on the show too. You, you talk about two worlds colliding; it'd be really great. So um, we were doing um, DoD training on. Um, CBRNE and um, and looking at the impacts of that based off of this scenario that we were given or we would we would create these scenarios whether it was a dirty bomb in New York or um, you know a chemical agent that was in the air in another city and so like what, what were the impacts and, and how to respond to that there was not a single person with uh, your expertise in the room but we were we were truly focusing on the more the modeling side of getting the situational awareness out to stakeholders, right? So we, it was basically my job to figure out what just happened, how bad it happened, and here you go, and you can figure out what to do. And um, that was a that was a, a really fascinating training. I, I want to back up here for a second, and uh, I, man, I I usually don't write down notes, but I'm having to write down notes because I'm really fascinated by this. So your background really is focusing on counterterrorism. Right. It, it, within obviously the intent is there. So counterterrorism. If insurance companies who I agree with you uh, look at risk better than anybody else because they're that's where the money is, um, is saying, hey, we're we're looking at the the level of um, your your ability to respond to terrorist attacks. Do you think it's uh, beholden of emergency managers from a purely financial standpoint to start studying? counterterrorism because for example if uh, an organization has a coup plan or they install security cameras or they install some of these things it reduces their cost to those commercial or even residential buildings uh, to that and so do you think that's worth a pitch for emergency managers to say i can reduce our budget if we uh, we've had these things in place yeah absolutely i mean i think there's always um there's always controversy about um, the use of the term terrorism. And I think sometimes it's perhaps more useful. Uh, again, you know, borrowing from the insurance industry, they'll often refer to political violence. Um, so you have a bit of a broader spectrum. And and again, from the insurance perspective, um, they not only ensure terrorism and political violence, but they ensure strikes, riots, and civil commotion uh, within there. And I think when you start to look at all those categories, you can say, well, you know, what kind of emergency manager is going to look at those? Because actually on the spectrum of political violence, there are activities that occur there that, that seriously impact um, the infrastructure of the, uh, the city and the safety and well-being of the people around there. Now, how much you go into studying it um, is always a tough question. Back to that point, you kind of want to rely on other experts. But I think as you kind of explained, you, you really need to try and understand um, how those incidents might affect your plans 
Um, how he may cause you to have to approach the problem in different ways uh, and how you're going to tie into people. Um, the Because, you know, there are all sorts of complexities that, that become involved when, you know, within a natural disaster, you've got this point of all, we're in straight, straight away and start to process it. However, within a terrorism event, and particularly some of the ones you've referred to, like uh, marauding shooters, actually one of the most challenging things about it is when does the event end? Um, when's the point where you can start yeah. the recovery? Well, we always um, talk about that. Normal management. We talk about that in any event, right? Hurricane <laughs> happens. The hurricane's gone. We're in response. I, I for me, it, the, the easiest one is when we stop looking for survivors. You're officially yeah. now yeah. in. There's like this thought process of like a soft a recovery, where it's like mm. this transitional period between. Like if you're not looking for live people, if you're looking either for uh, like adapter, like bodies, um, Move face. yeah, you you you've now moved on. But I, it's really hard for people to like get beyond that mindset because they, they try to put everything in a box. You ask anybody in the U.S., especially at the federal level, what is a type one, type two, or type three disaster incident? Every single person will give you a different answer. It's yep. like and so like some people will say nine eleven was not a type one incident because geographically it was too small. The incident was already over, but I'm like, that changed everything that, that was, that stopped the country, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, then we had somebody else in a wildfire that went through a neighborhood and the wildfire was done. And that was a, that was a type one, but I was doing like eight hour days. It was super easy in terms of like my, my workload. So yeah. it's, I don't know. I think we need to come up with better metrics of, of how to do this and, you know, whatever industry yep. we're in to, to really focus on that. Yep. Very about. Also, I, I'm a big fan, uh, in, uh, thinking of, uh, releasing more information as well. Like you talk to somebody and they're like, Oh, that's top secret, you know, or, or yep. like, Oh, that's, that's, we can't talk about that. And they're, I'm, I'm like, you're talking about where you're storing your water for the exercise. You know, like it's just, yeah. this is this is not top secret. Like, I think everyone's like, well, let's classify everything. And I think FEMA did a fairly smart job by making um, all of the national teams. They took away all their clearances and just said public trust, right? Like, share whatever information you got there. If it's really really bad, don't share it. And um, I, I think that's kind of the the name of the game here. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right on that. The um, uh, you know, I often refer to it as gatekeeping, and I'm not really sure it's always um, conscious, but you know, I see it all the time with people going, oh, you know, are you sure we can give them that? Are we allowed to release that? Is that okay? And um, uh, sometimes that's because procedurally we've created very elaborate ways to do things. Um, I was doing some, we had a big laugh about this. I've been doing work recently on the importance of live agent training for emergency responders. Um, and so obviously I spoke to, to FEMA because of the Center of Domestic Preparedness, you know, only facility in the world focused on providing um, a live agent training for emergency responders, which is an incredible facility. And we were having these initial talks, they're really good and opening up. We came to this point about, uh, you know, could you share one of those studies because that'd be really useful for me to, um, uh, to share back home about why it's important to do. And we all did the same thing. We were like, uh, okay, well, we're going to have to have a look at this because, you know, uh, you know, releasing it and, you know, I mean, you're our allies, but uh, I have to check on this. And I'm like, 
yeah, totally understand it. Our military, so I guess there's also that as well. And they're like, oh gosh, yeah, it is. We had like, they went out to the, their lawyers. Their lawyers were the best people ever. They just went, you realize that this was a public document. It is on the internet. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. And so we were just, oh, okay. oh, I mean, yeah, it, it, an abundance of caution. I think procedure can do that. But the other aspect of it as well is to try and work out what harm do you think is going to come? So sometimes, you know, even military is a really good example. We have to recognize that security procedures can be lax in certain areas because the value of the information is temporary. And that by the time the enemy has exploited it, it isn't worth anything anymore. Um, and uh, wrapping ourselves up in uh, or slowing our tempo. Um, the same is true for these other things. I had someone try and tell me recently that... Um, uh, I think my internet connection may have slowed down yeah, for you there. Yeah, just for a second. Yeah, you're good though. Yeah, you're back. Um, I had someone try and tell me recently that um, the drill for putting a respirator on your face is secret. <laughs> like, well, I hope not because <laughs> there is a lot of secret material on YouTube in that case. Because um, uh, again, you know, people have just they got used to to not questioning why are we doing this. So. But although that's a particular issue associated with security and protectively marked materials, actually it sort of goes into the same thing about well, why do we do this this way? And uh, momentum and you know inertia of organisations to to not change because we've always done it that way. Um, you know why do you do the radiation survey the way you do? Uh, well, because that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, but is it, is it the best way? Is there another way? Mm-hmm. Does anyone else do another way? Um, and I've seen this probably. The greatest example is and how you cut someone out or how you how you disrobe in a CBRN incident. Everyone has their own take on it, and um, you know the uh, in a in a slightly you know, crude analogy, I once referred to it as someone as this is a little bit like someone's sex life. So you know um, at, at its intrinsic level, it's the same for everyone. Okay, there are certain physics um, and biological aspects of it. So that's the same for everyone. Yeah. However, no one, no one wants to say that they're the same as anyone else. They've all got to have their own little flair, their own little sort of panache. Um, equally, no one wants to show other people how they do it. Um, and when you start to draw the analogy on, you go, do you know what? This really works as an analogy because, um, you know, wow, we could all get a lot better if we did find a way of sharing this information, but then no one really wants to do it. And then people are worried if they show you what, how they're doing it, that it, you, know, you might think it's not very good. Um, and yeah, if we could just get over our kind of first night nerves of CBRN, go, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to show you how I take my, my, uh, how I derobe, how I do my decon and, you know, have at it, rip me apart because I would rather a friend rip me apart than a terrorist rip me apart because I haven't actually properly read things myself. Um, leave it to the chemical biological expert to give an analogy about sex, by the way. So that's hilarious. Um, you're welcome. Yeah, that's that's a really good point of like who your friends are and uh, that collaborative spirit and um, like that training ground. Like mm-hmm. either way, it's going to happen, and you could put it in an environment where you're all working together and figure it out, or the bad guy's going to figure it out and uh, it could catch yep. you off guard. Um, yeah, so we, we we train to fail. So the the organization in the military that I um, uh, that I'm currently seconded to something called the Land Warfare Center in the UK. So we do all the collective training for land forces in in uh, in the UK, the the, the army, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of its key mottos is, is train to fail. 
So the you know, if we haven't found the point at which you fail, we're not pushing you hard enough. We've got to find, and, and you need to know, at what point can I go no further? At what point am I genuinely out of ideas, out of resources? Um, if you just go, we just want to see if you can do this scenario. Um, and if you do, you pass, that's all great. And this kind of goes into um, teaching you to suck eggs because obviously it's your, your bread and butter. But you know, what are you trying to get out of the exercise? What's the point of the exercise? Is it a confidence builder? Yay, we did it. It's all okay. Um, or are you genuinely trying to feel out your capabilities to see how good are we? You know, what else can we deal with? And what complexity levers can we, we pull to make this harder for you? You know, I've seen very few people with a C-run exercise going, you know what? Make it nighttime. Mm. We're going to do this one at night. Um, and yet suddenly you go, well, hang on a second. Well, why would that make it so much harder? Well, I see do those decon drills with no light. Or have you got the lighting rigs in for that? And, you know, if you, once mm. I've said this to you, you'll see it everywhere, especially anyone who is in the CBRN. Ask yourselves the last time you did a CBRN exercise at night. Because when I w- went back in my mind, I couldn't think of a single time. Because mm. yeah, it's difficult, colder. And uh, that, the chemical well, goes further. That's the reality, though, right? Like, that's what it would be like in, in, in the most real world scenario 24 hour yeah, off. And it doesn't, nece- it doesn't necessarily have to be associated with what you genuinely think the enemy are going to do. It's about testing for failure for you. It's about, well, let's find this out first rather than waiting for it to become a threat because it's a pretty easy thing for us to do. And even if we never do that again, well, maybe we'll learn some things which are useful for us. Um, in terms of how we improve our response to other things. So, you know, those complexity levers about weather conditions, um, about uh, daytime, nighttime, about other activities, yeah, they have a value in terms of being ready for those instances as well. But also just the stress they put onto the system can be valuable in terms of identifying better ways to do things. The the, the thought process I have with training is that I've seen far too often, though, where they, they... Every single exercise needs to be, you know, I give this scenario like nobody saw the hurricane coming and all of a sudden we're in a Cat 5 hurricane and what do you do? Go, 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 go. And it's like, that's not reality. And so uh, I'm, a, I'm actually a really big fan of, like you're talking about building confidence. I, I think it's important to go through and actually walk people through the steps with SMEs in the room and say, okay, here's a scenario, lose what you do. And then after that, then you start stressing the system. And stress it more and more and more and, and the frequency, right? Like after you make the basketball hoop, uh, make the basket in the basketball hoop, like you're not over, right? You have to do it a hundred more times to say like, okay, you're, you're, you're good at this. So uh, a big fan of training, a big fan of uh, the, the different types of training that we can provide. I'm going to, uh, Joe Hernandez was on the show. He's a urban search and rescue expert. Um, I'm going to go to um, his training in um, in Florida in May. So if you're if you're listening to the show and you're 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 in uh, USAR, make sure that uh, you check out that training. You can put something in the show notes or something. But uh, I'm going to be going and providing the EM perspective of like what's happening behind the scenes to be able to help coordinate that. So for uh, so for the people there, I'm really excited for that. But like I, I love the fact that um, there's they're they're going to have cadavers there. They're going to be testing really the system to people who have been doing this for a while. And yep. um, to like to understand those complexities, that's really interesting. Uh, John, you, you, you have like I, I can't agree with you enough about um, the so this like the springing the springing the exercise on people because 
Um, that artificiality creates an exercise which people get disengaged with because you, in their minds they're going, well, we would have done, we would have had this. This would have happened. This planning would have happened. We, we, you know, there's a there's a phrase in the UK we taught. It's like a joke about you know when you you're trying to plan for something but you're in the wrong place. So like, yeah, how do I get to Cardiff? Well, I wouldn't start from here. Um, the and and that kind of artificiality it, it creates the sort of wrong attitude. But also, you know, it means that you it's synonymous as well with the kind of recognition of the incident straight away because maybe you don't recognize the incident straight away and it takes some time. There's a lovely technique I've seen and um, the, it can be a bit strange. I've seen the police do it um, because all incidents start with, you know, who is the real first responder? Um, I saw this police force did an exercise. They invited me along to as an ex, uh, and it was a counterterrorism one to do with morning shooter. And they had, you know, the inspector who would be what we call the force Force manager, so he's the you know, in the control room, listening to the calls, deciding you know, what's happening, making those those level of decisions. Um, if you remember back to our, he's kind of like the bronze commander, and they they give him an inject and say, "What are you going to do now?" Um, and so the inject would start with, "A car has just plowed into the side of a pub. What are you going to do now?" And he goes, "Well, it's just a car has gone into the side of a pub. You know, I mean, I know this is a counterterrorism exercise, so I'm I'm hyper attuned for this. But what I would normally do is." I'd send a car and an ambulance and a fire engine. Yeah, what, what are you Remember. thinking I'm going to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, and actually, the way they did it was as he as he asked for expertise around the room. Like, we had all the experts and other observers, and he could go. Well, now I'm going to ask for my fire equivalent commander to come into the ops room, and that guy would go into the middle. And every time they made a decision, they're sort of sitting in looking at the exercise and feel. Everyone around has got like a green or red paddle. And uh, the exercise controller guy, okay, we're going to pause it for a moment. What do people think of the decision? Vote red or green. Mm. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. That's but, brutal, yeah. But it was a really nice way of doing it. And people would talk through because, you know, you can imagine with that first thing, because everyone's tuned, they're like, oh, no, you should be cordoning things off and getting the firearms officers. It's like, this is an RTC. Why are you getting a firearms officer to an RTC? Um, the other nice thing about that kind of style is you, you progress it and you ask the expert in. What you ask them in for isn't necessarily – you suddenly learn a lot about what they can do. So you suddenly discover that actually those those firearms officers, what they're going to do, they're going to hold the cordon. They aren't going to, you know, unless there's a reason, they're not going to progressively go into that, you know. And those nuances are really nice when you have the time to do it. Negatives, it takes time. There's a lot of people standing around, you know, and uh, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing to do. But no, you are you are absolutely right. You've got to be careful about just dropping the exercise straight on top of someone. Uh, we like a phrase I like to hear is uh, I like to hear. It's a funny way to say it, but uh, don't fight the exercise. That's a really funny way to say I didn't plan very well for this exercise, or I didn't give yeah. you clear expectations. Oh, don't fight the exercise. Yeah. Uh, Suspend okay. your disbelief for a moment. Um, the you know just 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 go with me on. Yeah, it. just like, just go with it. Uh, uh, okay, cat cat five hurricane in DC. Nobody saw it coming for five days. Now we're trying to figure out counterflow. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good call. So, um, I've been trying to hold back like this entire episode, but I'm going to do it now. Uh, Doberman emergency management teaches, or teaches exercises and we provide hazard vulnerability assessments, emergency operations plans, occupant emergency plans, threats, hazard identification, risk assessments, coup plans, continuity of operations plans. All of that reduces the, 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 the level of complexity for you in a disaster, but it also helps with uh, with your insurances and so we've been talking about like this for a whole time of like 
How do you do that? Well, if you have Steve Johnson uh, in the UK to help you out, then you got him. But if you're here in the States and you're looking, you're like, okay, they just had this conversation about CBRNE, or they had this conversation about um, coup plants, or they had this conversation about training, and you're trying to figure out what to do, you got to hire Dublin Emergency Management Group. So I, I made my official pitch there. Um, but but really, uh, Dr. Johnson, like, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like, there's just been, um, there's so many lessons learned. Um, there's a reason why you're a favorite professor, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get you back on. It might be five, ten years from now when you have some more time, but... Uh, seriously, like it's it's been a real pleasure. And um, but but before we wrap Thank it up, I, I've been kind of doing this. Yeah, we've been kind of doing this thing uh, because your field touches emergency management so much, and because you're in the military, and because you're with police, and because you're teaching, you're doing so many different things. You have a lot of accolades to your name. Um, what would be your advice for the future emergency manager? Where do we need to go from here to be to be better in our field? So, um, uh, the, so the first phrase that, 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 that came straight into my mind when you asked me that question is uh, diversity of thought and experience. Um, and it's a very popular phrase that people talk about in you know, Matthew Sayer's book about the thinking. Um, but uh, I think given the complexity of challenges that are facing us at the moment, we need to look at how do we help the emergency manager draw on diverse experience and thinking? Not just like, I want to go a fire person and a police person, but, but genuinely challenging that. Because for so many emergency managers, they are the lone wolf. You know, they're the single person in the department. And, um, and again, they're, they're perhaps in an organization with quite straight thinking. Um, there's, you know, and they're focused around a certain way. Um, how to do that? Well, it's about engaging with, you know, communities and with organizations and businesses that you may not even associate with emergency management, they may not associate themselves with emergency management. Um, and, you know, take that opportunity to say to them, look, you know, I'd be interested to see what you would do in this situation. Because um, the, the nice buyout of that as well is that actually, because everyone ultimately tends to be involved in an emergency, the more people that you've asked, and consulted on about how things are done, then the, the better your plan is going to end up being. But, you know, so I guess that, that, that line in there is try and find the organization or the people or the person that no one would ask and ask that person what they think um, and draw them into the conversation. Uh, and I think that's a useful thing anyway for organizations that we, you know, we need to, to draw on that experience so that the plan that we're writing is a plan that works for the whole community as well. Mm. I love that. Um, we're doing a, uh, in California, we have to do these uh, PSPS plans, public safety power shutoff plans, because the utility company essentially said we're going to be doing rolling rolling power outs for uh, power outages for a long time. And so we're, we're actually going in, we have contracts right now where we're going in with PSPS plans. And I think what has shocked most of our clients or pretty much everybody we've talked to is the amount of involvement we want with stakeholders. And we just ask more and more organizations of how do you touch this community, right? Whether it's a, it's a county or we're working with a, a tribal nation, um, the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians, big shout out to them. We're big fans of them and what they're trying to do. Um, but what, whatever their constraints are, we're trying to figure out who every single person who would touch this event if an event happened to them. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's, that's how you get away from cookie cutter. You, yeah. I, I, love the, I love the idea of 
try to ask the organization, nobody nobody would think it think to because everybody's going to be involved, and everyone's going to do something. Whether you involve them or not, they are going to act. Right? Schools yeah. are reopening right now, despite guidance. Right? Like they're like they're going to figure out a way, and um, you know, for the the testing, for example. So, really good call out. You take you take those organizations, particularly um, the ones we never ask. Take those organizations that are particularly that are politically lobbying for um for 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 the rights of their group and say, you know what? We probably don't consider you guys well enough in this. Mm. So, you know, leverage the fact that they are organizing themselves to try and determine what they need and better in in a political sphere and say, Well, while you're at it, we'd like to know how we can do these things better as well because ultimately that's how you you dismantle these concepts of um you know, unintentional but institutional biases because you then, you know, you work out what, what's wrong about it. The Canadians did a great exercise years ago where, you know, they realized there was a problem. The problem is how are we going to deal with emergencies where we've got a lot of people who are disabled and need a lot of extra care? Guess who they didn't ask? They didn't ask the disabled people in the exercise. And eventually one of the ladies in the exercise, and the Canadians are very honest about it. They, they wrote a great paper on the back of it. One of these women just said, for all that is holy, can you please get this idiot to stop pushing my chair? Because every time we go over a curb, I think I'm going to go flying. I can get down this curb safer than he can push me. Um, just oh, let nice. me go. And they were like, you know what? Maybe the person that knows how to evacuate themselves is the person who has been living in that wheelchair. They they may be more able than we think. I bet the um, Canadians were very apologetic, too, when that happened. Yeah. Sorry, oh, eh? sorry. <laughs> uh, so it's so easy to offend the Canadians because you know they're so nice about it. So they'll, uh, they'll be fine. Uh, yeah, they'll be all right. They're good people. So okay, uh, Doctor Johnson, again, thanks for coming on the show. If Thank you, you, yeah, you're welcome. If if you like this episode, which you should have because it was phenomenal, you should give it a five star rating and subscribe. And of course, we we always get a ton of people sending us messages to info at dobermanemg.com, and we do appreciate that. Keep sending those emails. However, we our main page for the podcast is Disaster Tough Podcast on Instagram. We also post on LinkedIn and Facebook about it. Again, Disaster Tough Podcast. So reach out to us there. If you want a question to ask the community, just like what Dr. Johnson was talking about, ask a question there. We can respond. We'll be posting more about his background and, and questions there. So that'd be great. Uh, tune in for next week. Thanks.